cold, but it was wasted on me. I couldn't find inside myself to give validity. I never knew which way you turned or what you thought of me. So I feel the way. Dan Ariely, who was most recently the author of The Upside of Irrationality. Dan, how are you doing? I am very well. I'm a little tired, but generally very good. Okay. Well, I wanted to first of all start with the pride of ownership, which you bring up in this book, uh, pointing to IKEA furniture assembly and marketing expert Ernest Dichter's egg theory, whereby he figured that if you added an egg to a cake mix, that it would create some sort of creative pride and the like, uh, sustaining the illusion that there was some kind of effort here. Uh, I'm wondering, why are human beings so easily fooled into believing that this minimal creative input uh, translates into bona fide creation? Are there any experiments or studies to suggest that human beings might grow tired of participating in this kind of ruse? Uh, I mean, after a while, won't well, people catch on, say, for example, the Converse.com customization yeah. of shoes isn't nearly as unique as they think it is? Yeah, so I think what happened is that we, we love ourselves. Right? I mean, and uh, we love ourselves so much that everything that touches us also has to be loved by us. Um, so, so I think that the creation is, is actually about that. It's about the fact that when we do something, it becomes special, exceptional, uh, different than other, and other things. So, and, and here's a way uh, to think about it. You have, uh, you have kids? No, I don't. No, you don't. Okay, so imagine you had kids. I have, I have two kids. Uh, two weeks ago, I was at a party, and uh, my kids were dancing. And I couldn't believe, I mean, I was watching my kids, you know, intently, and I couldn't believe that other people were not, right? And that's kind of the issue. Now, imagine the following thought experiment. I'm not really proposing it, but the following thought experiment. You have kids, and, you know, they're 15 and 12, and I ask you, how much would I need to pay you to erase the memory of your kids from your brain. I'm not really buying them, but I'm kind of eliminating them from your life. How much would I need to compensate you yeah. for, this, for this thing? Now, of course, there are bad days and good days with kids, but, but in general, you would say, your kids have given so much meaning to your life and so much value, and they're so wonderful, and so on. You will demand a lot, a lot of money for that. But what if I said something different? If I said, imagine you don't have these kids, you go to a park one day, you meet kids, or basically like your kids, you play with them for four hours, you learn everything there is to know about them, and then when you say goodbye, their parents said, hey, by the way, before you're going away, they're for sale, are you interested? Yeah. How much money would you pay for them now? And now every parent, you know, I'm guessing, will say, not that much. Yeah. And, and this, this kind of brings to mind the question of why, why do we love our kids so much? Is because of them or it's because of us? And when we ask it this way, I think it becomes clear that it's because of us. Now, kids are kind of the exception. I mean, they're kind of at the extreme. We invest lots of effort and lots of time into them and lots of thought. And because of that, we love them so much. But I think the same process works for lots and lots of things, including surprisingly little things. It's amazing how little we need to do to, to add something. In fact, uh, there is something called the, the name letter effect which asks the question of which letters of the alphabet do you like more and which letters of the alphabet do you like less. And it turns out that people like more letters that appear in their first name. Right? Again, something is connected to you, related to you, we just love it more. But the question is, is whether there is some kind of maximum threshold or escalation of yeah. that one item that makes something unique before we realize that it's really a ruse. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's actually going the other way in terms of society. So 
Uh, you know, long time ago, we had to, you know, hunt and spend time uh, finding food and yeah. cooking and so on. Right now, you can do it in 30 seconds. So what do you do with the rest of the time? Right? I, I think we get conceptual consumption. I mean, we're still occupied with consumption, but it yeah. becomes much more about the idea behind it right now rather than the thing itself. You know, we, we can get enough food, there's no problem. It's about what does the food mean and what does the clothes mean and the vacation that we get and so on. And as we strive more for, for meaning and ideas and stories, I think we actually would get more and more involved in, in, in this aspect of loving what we create. By the way, I also think this, this has to a lot to do with how things turn out in the, in the housing recession. When, uh, as the housing kind of market was, was going down and down and down, uh, Zillow, the, the website, did a, the website, uh, they did a survey that asked people, uh, have houses in your community lost value? And people said yes. Have your house fallen in value? And people said absolutely no. Yeah. And I think the reason is that we have our own house and we've tailored it just to ourselves and we put much of ourselves into it and we expect other people to value it. Uh, maybe not as much as we do, but to a much larger extent. So people are kind of immune from thinking that other people don't see things in the way that they do. We're talking about that interval between social norms and market norms. Mm -hmm. And uh -huh. I'm curious, I mean, obviously you're dealing largely with behavioral economics, but in this case, like say a home, yeah. uh, we almost have both a social and a market norm. And so as yeah. a result, it becomes uh, a dicey proposition when we're, we're trying to analyze why people place this extraordinary value on their own particular possessions, because it may not necessarily be interpreted, at least from their perception, as a possession. Yeah, so, so, so housing is complex. Again, it's, it's one of those things when you try to get people to think about the house from the perspective of the market, they have a hard time. First of all, they are connected to the price they bought the house at. It's irrelevant, right? It's irrelevant how much you bought the house. The question is how much you can sell it for, but people get attached to it. But on top of that, I talk to many real estate agents, and they say that when they get a seller to express a, a price, if they get an offer that is way too low, they take it as a personal offense. Yeah. Right? It's not personal offense. What, what? But no, people really get upset. Yeah. Well, you were upset when they did the same to your house, when yes. you were taking out the walls and they asked you to put them back in so you could sell the home. That's right. So, so Sumi and I kind of did lots of changes to our house and made it just so, so we loved it. And lots of other people loved it as well, but didn't want to live in it. Yeah. And, and eventually what we did was we, we put some walls back, we, we changed some of the, the, the beautiful things we've done for our purposes. And actually, Sumi didn't want to see it after we've done yeah. all these changes. It was just, just really heartbreaking. But there's also an interesting irony there about something that you customized yes. becomes off-market. <laughs> That's right. So uh, it's almost, I mean, where does the baseline, we need yeah. to, I guess, suppose, start off of a baseline item for market value, and yeah. then we get into a tricky situation where our own personal, the unique qualities right. we play, place the, the, on The unique taste that you have might actually make the house less valuable. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's very hard to see it, right? Yeah. Because if you like blue and you're, you know, it's very hard for you to understand that people would not like blue windows or, or blue something. And you, you come up with something, especially if you spend lots of time and energy on it and yeah. you do it just so, it's really hard to imagine. I mean, I can tell you as somebody who, you know, I, so, so I wrote a couple of books, it's the same thing, right? I invested a tremendous amount of effort and energy into those things. And, and if somebody doesn't like them as much as I do, I, I don't understand how can that be, right? I expect everybody to love these books. I mean, beyond, in fact, in my view, they're better than any other book in the world. I mean, almost, <laughs> you know, but, but, but once you invest so much effort, it, it really becomes, you just get blinded yeah. to, to the projection of the, the, the other people. 
But how does humility factor into something like this? Just from a scientific standpoint, I mean, I, I don't think you really believe that these two books are the best books in the world. No, I don't. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to break it to you. You know, if I had the choice yeah. between your book, which is great, I, I would <laughs> choose Ulysses over that. No, no offense. Well, you know, talk to my mother. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, we know that there are some things that are not about this. Sometimes when you have a biased view of the world, you understand that it's kind of a little bit biased. But I don't think we understand how biased it is, right? So, sure, I would understand there's a few books better than mine in principle, but if I, if I had to ask to rank the 100 best New York Times books, you know, it would, it would be higher than on my ranking and my mother's ranking than on yours. Yeah, got it. <laughs> but, I mean, how, how does, say, I guess, a rational humility, an understanding of these social realities yeah. uh, per permit us to make, uh, to have a more rational take upon our the value of what we produce versus the real value that I suppose the communal yeah. uh, world places upon. So, so this, this is a real interesting question about the value of rationality. Yeah. So you can ask yourself whether you want to have an objective view of the world. You know, we're sitting in a restaurant and think about how many people would actually open a restaurant if you knew what the odds of success are. Yeah. You know, not many people. How many people would do startups? How many people would write uh, books? I mean, lots of stuff we wouldn't, we wouldn't do. Or, Think about how many researchers would continue to work endless hours on a research project if they didn't were particularly attached to it. I mean, and this happens in, in, in everywhere. So um, I think that this over-attachment of taking care of our kids has some negative consequences but has lots of positive consequences. And there's lots of things like this. For example, we have an overly rosy view of ourselves and our probability of uh, living longer than other people and getting less sick and the fact that we will try hard, we will succeed. I mean, we have all these illusions of positivity, and to some degree, they're quite helpful. They're not always helpful, right? It's not that uh, it's clear that it's, if you design a new human being, you want it, but it has pluses and, and negative at the same time. Yeah. I wanted to talk about self-hurting, uh, involving the phenomenon whereby we realize that something is good uh, or bad based on an emotional reaction. This often has a long-term effect uh, yeah for our future behavior. Uh, we have an emotional reaction, we make a decision, and this sets a precedent. Yeah. Uh, you conducted an experiment with Eduardo Andrade, Andrade yeah. where you wanted to chart what you styled an emotional cascade. Yes. Um, I'm curious, first of all, why did you two settle upon the ultimatum game for the uh -huh. form of the experiment? And are there any cognitive effects that can break the emotional cascade cycle? Is there some rational part of the brain that would clear out all the leftover re retaliatory conditions? Yeah, so, so first of all, let, let's talk for a second about kind of self-hurting. Self-hurting is the idea that you behave once mm -hmm. in a certain way, and when you come to behave again, you can try to assess the situation, but that's quite hard. Yes. So instead what you do is you consult your memory. You say, hey memory, what, what did I do last time? And you basically use it. So imagine that you have two paths to make decision making. You can do it based on preferences or based on memory. Well, memory is easier, so we do it. And in Predictably Rational, I talked about self-herding in the domain of pricing, which the idea was that you don't know how much coffee is worth, but the first time you see coffee, you decide to buy it. The next time you come, you say, hey, I must have made the right decision. I always make the right decision. If I decide to pay 280 for a cup of coffee, it must be worth it. Let me do it again and again and again until you stop thinking about it. This... In this new book, we, we expand on it in, with this idea of emotional cascade, which is, it's not about deciding once about pricing and then continuing. It's the idea that once you have an emotional influence 
over a behavior in a particular case. And we know how emotions can create momentary fluctuation in behavior. So for example, imagine I ask you to reflect for half an hour with me about how you felt in the last two and a half years when your stock value took a dive. How, how were these days? Tell me, how did you feel those days when your stock value, your stock portfolio lost 10% of its value? How did you feel? How did you uh, treat your friends? How happy were you? You know, we talk about like this. Or we can talk about how nice it will be to retire to the Virgin Islands or the Bahamas or go fishing or whatever it is. And then I ask you, and what's your risk attitude? Right? Presumably, if we just talked about for half an hour about the misery of losing money, you would say, I don't want to experience another one of those days ever. And if we talk about retiring in the Bahamas, you would say, hey, yeah, it would be really nice to take some risk and be able to afford that. So this is about getting you to have an emotional influence that then will change your decision. But the self-hurting is that then this decision could propagate on itself, right? So, and, and in the financial case, if I would then optimize your portfolio based on that, it would now have a long life. And if next year when you came to see me again and we look at your portfolio, we say, hey, let's look what you did last year and let's see how we change it, it will, could have a long, a long influence. So this, this project with Eduardo, we actually created implicit emotions. And implicit emotion is a name for emotion that you as a, as a participant in the study, don't think they come from the particular thing you're working on. So we, we showed people an annoying movie or a happy movie, and then we got them to play the, the ultimatum game. And the ultimatum game, just quickly, it's a, it's a game in which there are two players, the sender and the receiver. Imagine that you're the sender and I'm the receiver. And you have $20, and you can send anything between $1 to $20 out of it to me. And I can either accept or reject. Yes. Now, if I accept, the money is divided this way. If I reject, we both get nothing. Yeah. Now, if you give me, um, you give keep 19 and send me one, from the rational perspective, I should accept it because if I reject, I get zero. I'm better off with one than with zero, so I should take it. But the reality is that people often reject 19. One, they want something that is more equal. Yes. Um, like, you know, 10-10 uh, would be great, but I would even accept 12-8. But, but if, it doesn't, if it gets too skewed, I would start rejecting. I would basically cut my nose to spite my face, right? I would lose money to make you suffer, <coughs> suffer even more. And what we show is that receivers, people like me, after watching a, an, an annoying movie, reject, are much more likely to reject, where people that are happy are much more likely to accept. So the first notion is that emotion is actually the driver of those decisions. I get annoyed. I don't know exactly what I got annoyed from, but I see the offer. I said, I'm annoyed, I see the offer, this offer must be terrible, F you, I don't want to, to take it. And the opposite with happiness. Now, what's interesting is that if we take some time afterward, we let people calm down, emotion fade away, uh, the question is, what will happen? Now, if you do the experiment, and you annoy people, and you let time pass away, and you get them to play the ultimatum game, nothing happens, because the next time they play the ultimatum game, the emotion is not there. Yeah. But if you get them emotional and you get them to play while emotional and then you wait for the emotion to go away and then you play it again, now the original emotion has an effect. Not directly. You're not really feeling the emotion, but you remember what you did last time. You think it must have been sensible. After all, you made this decision and therefore you keep on doing it. Yeah. So, so the, idea, the idea is that we often make emotional decisions that are influenced by emotion. You're in the office and you got a bad email. You're at home and you got upset by something. The stock market went up or down and you're doing something else. We have lots of these background emotions that influence us. And the idea is that if we work 
make decisions under those conditions, and those decisions are remembered, the emotional state, even though fluctuating and temporary and irrelevant, might nevertheless have a long-term effect. But how close does the emotional experience have to be to reproduce or have even a diminished emotional consequence upon the future action. You mean, I mean, you you know mean, I mean close, close in terms of type of emotion type or in terms of emotion of, emo or even of type time? of circumstance generating the emotion? So, so I think it has to be quite close in time yeah. in the sense that if you get an emotional effect in a few hours it will go away. But in terms of type of emotion I don't think it has to be very close. Mm -hmm. right? so, so if you think about this, this, these movies we use were completely irrelevant. Yeah. You watch the movie about somebody destroy, I mean, getting upset with their boss and then you got an offer for money. I mean, these are, these are very, very different things. So I think it would work very well. You know, often there's an old literature in psychology that asks, um, do we, are we run, running because we're afraid or are we afraid because we're running? Yeah. And the idea is that we feel emotions, but they, we don't necessarily know where the emotion came from. And how would you know? I mean, if you think about the brain structure, what would you have? A, a thermometer, some kind of measurement tool some inside kind of, of your emotions? or something, yeah. That's right. So, so the, the idea is that we feel emotions and then we try to attribute them to something, but we don't always know where they came from. And of course, there's a lot of room for abuse in this case. One of the earlier experiments on this was an experiment in which they got people that walked over a drawbridge. And uh, somewhere uh, they met a, a relatively attractive woman who gave them a survey, but also gave her the, her phone number in case they want to find the results. And sometimes they met each other in the middle of the drawbridge, so the subject started walking and the woman walked across and met him in the middle. And sometimes she met them at the end of the drawbridge. And when you're in the middle of a drawbridge, you're a little bit of more frightened. Your heart is pounding, your breath is a bit more shallow. And the question is, will people misattribute those emotions and think that they like the woman more? And if that was the case, and they were much more likely to call her. So the, the thing is, sometimes we get an emotion with an indicator about where it's coming from, but often they're very diffused. Like, think about it. You, you open your email and sometimes you say, my goodness, I'm annoyed with something. What was it? And you have to think back to yourself and try to ping it yeah. on something. So, so because of that, because this is the nature of emotion, I think that they, the, the, the experiences don't have to be similar. They just have to evoke emotion. Yeah. But on the other hand, once you recognize the emotion from a rational standpoint, then yes. I suppose you could nip it in the bud? Or? Yeah, so if, if you know where the emotion came from, you can offer try to uh, partial it out. So again, there's, there's these experiments in which you call people up and you say, how do you feel today? And then you say, how is the weather? And under those conditions, the correlation between weather and happiness are quite high. People say, how do I feel? They say, and how the weather? Oh, they say, no. But if you ask the opposite order, you say, how good is the weather? And you pay attention to the weather, and they say, how do you feel? People say, oh, the weather is probably what's making me either happy or unhappy, but that's not what they're asking, so let me partial it out. Let me ask them, like, how do I really feel, not what the weather, and then the correlation becomes much lower. So if people know where the emotion came from, for example, if we did the experiment, but the same experiment, we showed them these movies, but before we play the game, we say, hey, before we play the game, do you have any residual emotions? Do you think that the movie made you happy and so on? Now play the game people might have been able to counteract it to some degree. So that's the, the possibility.
got it. Uh, you point to the problem of misallocating resources in relation to humanitarian aid, pointing out that the amount of money that is donated to specific tragedies varies according to the number of people, the severity. Uh, for example, most people are inclined to donate money to Katrina, September 11th, rather than donate to AIDS or malaria, which has a greater effect on the human population. Uh, we're called to action more by an individual personalized suffering rather than a large-scale humanitarian problem. Uh, I'm wondering if there are other methods of getting through to people aside from a direct personal emotional appeal. Uh, you had pointed to Vancouver social psychologist Liz Dunn, which is referenced in the in end notes. Uh, she revealed that donations don't just arrive because of a personal appeal, but also when a person knows someone or has a direct yeah. connection with someone in the community. Is the communal approach kind of a halfway house between that sort of I suppose crasser emotional appeal and the yeah. more larger human responsibility it's yeah. or the, the move to, or the shift towards rationality? Yeah, so it's not clear it's toward rationality. It's about what invoke us to act, right? Yes. So uh, if it's somebody individual rather than many, we invoke to act. Somebody more similar to us rather than dissimilar. Somebody close to us. Somebody whose problem we can solve completely rather than just partially. All of those things add up to something that we can actually end up caring about. So it's not just about individual versus statistical, it's about our proximity for this and similarity and our ability to imagine ourselves in that situation. Um, but, but the problem is that, that there are some really big problems in the world that don't map onto these things, right? Think about something like global warming, right? It has all the components of get people not to care. There's not a single thing about global warming until it starts killing people, or until yeah. we see the residue, or people close to us, and so on, that would get us to um, to care about it. I'm actually, you know, uh, I've been thinking about the BP uh, disaster, yeah. and it's it's getting more attention than I would have guessed. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I mean, are, yeah. you, are you also surprised with how much attention it's getting? Well, compare it to like Exxon Valdez, and it's actually, yeah. I would say, comparable. I would think, you know, in terms yeah. of media attention, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's it's hard to. I, I didn't do the study to. But, you know, I, I think that few things kind of make it more appealing as, as a story. One is that it's not over yet. So it's still in progress and we don't understand what it is. It's I think a narrative. It's, but not just a narrative. We don't know exactly who else would be suffering. Yeah. Right? So we don't know. And we don't know how the oil, who exactly will be hitting with this oil slick. So yeah. people who live in many places are are worried. And we who know different people worried. So, so there's, a, there's a narrative. It's not over yet. Uh, there's continuous stories about attempts and failures. Uh, so that, I think, is one aspect that makes it more, um, more uh, capturing of the, of the attention is that it can hurt more and more people and we don't know exactly how it plays out yet. Um, the, the other thing that is interesting is I think that it's because we're really angry with BP. Yeah. So uh, the type of apology that they've kind of tried to make and seems so insincere, yeah. uh, getting people just be even more upset yeah. with this with this aspect. So like this is a, and this probably comes back on the on the background of the banking crisis that we have uh, lower trust in corporations and uh, we've seen ourselves being abused and we see other people taking risks that are inappropriate and we think that the same thing has happened here. Um, but but I from the stuff on, on human psychology you can actually be surprised about why are people paying so much attention. I think these are the two keys for why, yeah. this, why this tragedy is getting as much attention as it is. There's a specific personal figure that they can use to 
make sense of the situation. I mean, like, for example, to compare, like, say, the BP tragedy with the ongoing gyres, the garbage patches, there's five of them. Yeah. You know, just huge, like, the one in the Pacific's the size of Texas. All the plastic that we consume is just spiraling yeah. around, and it's going to really be terrible yeah. for us down the line, and yeah. just in the last 20 or 30 years. And yet, I... I don't see people getting outraged yep, about that. Yep. Well, would that would, is this the result of of the problems of not having that personal connection, yep. that personal attachment? I, I think I think it's the fact that it's not threatening anything. We don't exactly see it's progressing. It's not so quick. I mean, yeah. it, it will take it will take longer, and it's not caused by one organization. It's yeah. caused by lots and lots and lots of small things. Let's go and trot out the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> first coined by Brickman and Campbell to account for the way in which a person maintains a relatively stable level of happiness uh, despite changes in fortunes and goods and various experiences. Uh, Michael Eisnick uh, expanded upon this by comparing hedonic adaptation to a treadmill, of course, whereby one has to keep up to maintain the same level of happiness. And now in this book, you point to Leif Nelson and Tom Mavis's experiment where they played annoying sounds. Uh, they styled these sound breaks, or these sounds rather, hedonic disruptions. Uh, they discovered that the participants who experienced a short break uh, between the sounds were more annoyed than those who had the sound in one straight shot. Yeah. Um, so you have a scenario here where the pampered participants uh, were, weren't able to adapt and on the other hand, though, I must point out that this was in a controlled environment. Uh, I, I just want to ask you about this. Like, if I go for a walk, yeah. and uh, I'm doing this sort of continued state of tranquility, and I'm attacked by a psychotic maniac who proceeds to stab me, there's not really much I can do in terms of adapting to this particular yes, crisis. No. And so how does something like this experiment relate to a, a tangible life situation in which you're throwing curveballs, in which there's all these late-stage developments that you can't possibly anticipate, yeah. in which you're constantly being interrupted by some unexpected development. Yeah. So, so, so adaptation is is adaptation can only happen for prolonged, monotonic experiences, right? It doesn't happen to to other things. And the the basic point of the of the Mavis and uh, Leif and Tom's paper is that when you have a prolonged experience, if it's bad, people think I really want to take a break, and if it's good, people say I really don't want to take a break. And it's because people think about the break. <laughs> they think if I'm in the middle of something terrible, taking a break will be, feel great. And if I'm really something good, taking a break will be terrible. And the people are correct about it. What they don't understand is they don't take into account going back to it. So you had something great, you took a break, coming back might be even greater. And if you had something miserable, <laughs> taking a break, coming back might be even more miserable. Um, so, so the question we need to ask ourselves is, are those things in life... I mean, you can ask about two things. You can say, what can we adapt to in principle? And they have to be things that are prolonged and monotonous with not much change. I mean, television shows, movies, I think all of those count. Um, and then the question is, uh, what kind of disruptions uh, can we have and what disruptions uh, do we have? So you can ask yourself a question, for example, if you watch a, real, a movie that you really like... Would it make sense to stop in the middle and go and get a sandwich? Right? Would it actually make you happier? And the results suggest that it would. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I, I, I find this very interesting. Um, this, this, by the way, for me is kind of... Uh, the, the whole thing of adaptation uh, is particularly interesting because I, I look at my own life and I, I look at the kind of things that I've adapted to over long periods of time, like, like pain, and I'm very grateful for it. And I look at other things I've adapted to, like, you know, the fact that I, 
Uh, I'm not a grad student anymore and I have a salary and I've adapted to that state of affairs sadly too quickly. Um, so, so adaptation is kind of a really interesting two-edged sword. That it's really nice to be, have the ability to adapt to bad things. Yeah. It's kind of a shame we also adapt to the good things. Yeah. Uh, but if, are we talking about, I mean, I want to sort of see if the experiment can be applied to, say, a scenario that, that goes beyond just one thing like an annoying sound and into the sort of the great multitasking. If it's, if it's about pain or if it's about uh, being subjected to an annoying sound, yeah, that's great and everything, but we're talking about a world that's becoming increasingly... Oh, so you're saying nothing increasing is Increasing distractions, yeah, yeah I and, think and I, developments. So is, is the question nothing is monotonic? I don't think so. So, of course, it's easier to think about the movie. Yeah. And it's something you're completely sure. immersed in and it's a one experience. Something that's a passive experience or a singular experience. Yeah, but you're saying if I'm walking on the street, I'm doing 15 things at the same time, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm uh, walking, you're I'm... Listening uh, to an iPod or whatnot, yeah. Yeah, so nobody has done that as far as I can think about it. But, but I would say that even if you do multiple things, there'll be things within it that are relatively stable and you can adapt to. So, so I think it would, it would do it. Um, and now the question is when you do 15 things at the same time, or let's say three, uh, are they f always functioning as interruptions for each other? And I don't think so. I mean, I mean think about living in New York City. There's lots of annoying stuff in this. And you can ask yourself, how quickly do you get used to it? And, um, and I think it's a process of adaptation. It's a process in which you get to, to, to feel differently about those things and you get, and you get used to them. Um, and, and the fifth subway stop is not as annoying as the first one, even though lots of other things are happening. Yeah. Right? So. I, I wanted to touch base on the study you conducted with Jenna Frost, Zoe Chance, and Mike Norton. You found that people spend an average of 5.2 hours per week searching profiles. Uh, this is for online dating. Yeah. 6.7 hours per week emailing potential partners, uh, and nearly 12 hours a week in the screening stage. Uh, you cite these findings as a dating market failure, uh, pointing out that this represents a 6 to 1 ratio uh, for a return investment. Um, but I'm wondering what makes these online efforts any different from, say, talking and chatting up women in the bar for yeah. six hours to get that one hour of, yeah. you know, for so, love or sex or whatnot. I mean, hasn't it always been this way? This right. So, so first of all, you can ask yourself, how much do you enjoy chatting women up in bars? Yeah. And how much do you enjoy online dating? And for most people, the chatting up in the bar is a much more pleasurable experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on, on hedonic value as well, alone on, on, the, on that value. But, but here is kind of the big, where I, th I see the market failure, and I, I think the lesson goes beyond online dating. It's how do online dating describe people and how compatible it is with how we process information. So, so imagine that I asked you the following thing. I said, let's take 50 people that you really like and 50 people that you don't like that much. Give me their names. I will contact them, and I will ask each of them to describe themselves based on the profile of some online dating site, without picture and without name. And then they will come and give you back their profiles and ask you to sort them into two piles, a pile that you really like and a pile that you don't like that much. Now the question to you is, how good do you think you'll be able to do it? And the reality is you'll be very bad. Why? Because when you take an people who are experienced goods and you break them into attributes, it's very hard to figure out what, what people are. In fact, think about your best friends and say, what are the attributes that made them your best friend? It's really very hard to quantify. So, so what we're doing in online dating is we're doing something that is easy for computers but not for people. And somehow we force people to do it rather than the other way around, which is to do something that's easy for people to do 
and try to force the computer to do it as well. So that, I think, is the big failure. And, and of course, it's not just in dating. It, there's a lot of things that we describe products and services and ideas and retirement plans and so on in terms that are easy for computers to understand or easy for actuarial to describe and not easy for people to comprehend. Yeah. Is this comparable to, say, a division of labor? Uh, you do discuss the meaning of labor early on in the book, and you suggest that Adam Smith's emphasis on this division of labor uh, doesn't quite take into account internal motivation, drive, and productivity. But I actually want to ask you, what of uh, Chick sent me highies? I think I got that pronunciation yeah, yeah, right. His, quite his good. His flow. Nobody else can. Yeah, yeah, it's a very tough name to pronounce. I mean, uh, if you take into the account flow, a free market advocate is really going to say, well, I can make a widget worker, or in this case, I can make an online dater uh, adapt more effectively because we're thinking of flow. We're thinking of, of that, that notion. What of this? Yeah, so, so I think that uh, Mihaly would, would, would say that it's very hard to get into a flow state of something that is just repetitive yeah. and mindless. Yeah. That, that the notion was that you get consumed by the task, that it captures all of your aspect. In fact, if you do something that doesn't need thought and concentration and effort, you can't get into a state of flow. A state of flow really requires attention. So you can say, let's create things that are mindless. And mindless we can create, yeah. right, uh, by division of labor. We can make the task so simple you don't have to think about it. So you can, but, but in the flow state, it has to consume all of your resource all of your processing resources. Yeah. yeah. Would, uh, would this be comparable to what we were discussing earlier about the dictor egg into the cake mix thing? I mean, is that a mindless task? Um, I mean, it is, but I don't think it's, a, it's about the mindless. So, so there, is, there is a question of how does our attention work and how our thinking work? It's actually one of those topics we don't really understand. What happens when we mind wonder? What happens when we try to focus on something? Can we create higher focusing attention? Um, the, the real one of the Danica Hanman had this uh, uh, model in the in the seventies about attention that basically said that as the demand from the environment increase, our attention amount increased. Like we sometimes think that we have a fixed amount of attention, but the fact is that it increased. So we're sitting here in a slightly noisy environment. It slightly arouses us, and the question is, because of that, do we have higher attention span? Or think about what happened when you talk to somebody over the phone. You don't really get this personal connection. No. You probably get lower arousal. You also get lower ability to concentrate and think and, and, and focus. So is, is attention actually scales up with the demand of the task? And, and Danny has some, some evidence to show that. Now, if this is the case, then trying to make things as simplistic as possible is actually going to backfire because you don't tap human capacity. In fact, yeah. you want to increase some demand and therefore also get extra capacity. Flow then requires complexity and online dating requires complexity atop complexity. I mean, maybe like, say, for example, the OkCupid okay yes. elaborate questionnaire is, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like playing Baldur's Gate. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it goes on and on and on. I mean, I mean back the, when I did it years and years ago. I mean, the, it's, the most extreme, of course, is eHarmony yeah. in terms of, in terms of the, the questions. Uh, eHarmony, by the way, it's, it's kind of interesting. They are different than other websites on two grounds. The first is that they ask you like 400 questions. I didn't count, but about, you know, lots and lots of questions. So you have kind of cognitive dissonance, right? By the time you've invested all this amount. Also, I met somebody yesterday who said they were rejected. 
Like they sometimes they go to people and say, hey, sorry, you are not fitted to our population. <laughs> uh, that person was kind of devastated personally. You know, what do you mean you reject me? I'm After they had gone through the 400 yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Um, uh, but the other thing they do is they don't give you a catalog of lots of people. So you go on other dating site and you finish doing your profile and they give you, say, here's 10,000 people. Go and start the work. Um, Harmony gives you very, very few. Say, so here is one or two people that we think are good for you. Yeah. And, and then we take it from there. So, so that actually is a much more, I think, compatible approach with human beings. Forget their algorithm. I don't think the algorithm is, is, is that exciting. But I think this aspect of getting to you to invest, selecting out people you think are not suitable for the system, and on top of that, not overwhelming people with too many choices, but saying, here are the people that you should magically think... Could connect to you somehow. But not only is it a matter of overwhelming with choice or not overwhelming with choice in this case, but it's also, it relates to what you describe about wages, how if someone is paid a very small amount, they're more inclined to be more productive than someone who yeah. is paid obscenely for it. Uh, yeah. Would this work in the same principle, the eHarmony uh, technique of only getting a few yeah, choices? Yeah, I, I think it gives you a few, it gets you to focus on the specific things, it, it gets you to understand what more easily what are the next steps mm -hmm. and, and take them. So in many ways, I think it kind of eliminates ambiguity, eliminates stress, make it more clear what to do, and then for people to follow up. Yeah. I wanted to talk about revenge. Uh, Ernest, Ernst Fair, uh, he examined revenge using a trust game. Uh, you bring this up in the book. He discovered through a PET scan that there was increased activity in the uh, striatum, uh, the portion of the brain that's associated with the way that we experience reward. Uh, when the participants punished people yes. through this particular experiment, uh, suggested that punishment or be punishing betrayal has a specific biological underpinning. Yep. Uh, your coffee shop experiments with Daniel it demonstrated that apologies uh, had a temporary effect upon counteracting this annoyance uh, and the need to take revenge to rectify social norms. But if the desire for retribution is indeed biological, can it be entirely tempered with an apology? I mean, if you had to select a few specific examples or market variables, in what instances can market norms adapt swiftly enough to consider these social norms? Yeah, so, so I think it's a question of how seriously you take the apology, yeah. right? So again, the BP case yes. doesn't, doesn't really help. Um, but I think if you say revenge is an emotional, the desire for revenge is an emotional activity that gets activated, it can also be overridden uh, but, but by something else. And now the question is, is, is what it is. And I think apology is actually quite useful. Um, I, I think explanations can help uh, occasionally. Time can help a little bit um, to, to help it. But, but it's about this, um, you know, I also describe why, why revenge is useful, right? Yeah. Because I say, you know, if you live in a society that has revenge, people actually will treat each other nicer because they'll be afraid of retribution. And it's not as if... It's not as if you would decide when it's useful for you to take revenge and when it's not, but if you kind of was forced in some way by the pleasure of your brain to, to create revenge, it will mean that other people who are next to you and misbehave could get, could get value. Um, so, so I think that there are some, some remedies that can, that can help. Apology is the, is the main one. It worked very well for me in my, you know, my personal life. I get to use it a lot with my wife, who is a basically saint. Um, but if I think about other, other things that could trump it, like for example, I imagine what happened if I need a sense for revenge, and then I try to put you in a really good mood by 
music or movie or something else. Just reflecting personally, I don't see it happening. I mean, do you? Maybe not. I think, I think it's a sufficiently targeted emotion that you have to deal with that link between you and the target. So, so I don't think it's as generalized. Like when you feel a sense of revenge against somebody or some entity or some organization, and I don't think you necessarily would start behaving worse to other organizations or people. And I don't think if other things made you happy, that would necessarily take away kind of the desire for revenge. So, so I think it's, it's one of those really specific things yeah. that can be helped by talking about that specific link. But I'm wondering if there's an experiment that, for example, in responding to this feeling of revenge, takes into account time, no apology, apology, no time, or even the combination of the two. Yeah. Have you, have you, have you uh, investigated? When, when we delayed, we, so we didn't do apology and time, but yeah. we did time, yeah. and time helps, right? Yeah. You delay things, things go away. Um, you know, I, I think also kind of education for rationality can help. So we... Um, you know, we find, for example, that peop uh, undergrad students who leave economic classes, introduction to economic classes, behave differently than people who don't take this class, right? Because in some sense, you just teach them to be selfish. Yeah. You say, here's the right behavior, right? This, you think this person betrayed you? No. <laughs> you just behave according to the rules, right? That's, that's the rules of the game, right? They were just participating. What, there's, there's nothing personal about it. And... And it looks like you can train people to think this way for short durations, right? So, um, you know, and I think that there is a mindset in which says this is just business. And I think in many ways it's hard for us to accept it. Yeah. But culturally we have come to accept a few things like that, right? That this is just business. It's not personal. Yeah. And somehow it excuses selfish behavior because we're trained to think that this is kind of an overpass, a, 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 an overriding principle, that if it's just business, it's somehow okay. So if the human brain was more capable of distinguishing, distinguishing between social and market norms, yeah. this would probably solve a lot of disputes? <coughs> or, I mean, is the human brain I, even I capacity? Think not, not just distinguishing, but, but functioning more. You know, I don't know if we want that, but yeah. if we wanted it, I think it would eliminate some of the desire for revenge, right? If you basically said everything, it's just business. Yeah. You, you go to a mechanic and they charge you more <clears throat> and they kind of f f fudge the bill. And, you know, it's just a game. They try to cheat you. You try to cheat other people. It's just about trying to find it. You would probably not feel as uh, the need for revenge if you could get into this mindset. I don't know if I like this mindset. Yeah. But, but no, I think it's, so. it's clear that you don't. I mean, your yeah. car breaks down <laughs> and, and essentially what was yeah. told to you is it was just business. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I suppose yeah. we're doomed to some degree. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's lots of stuff that we don't want to think about stuff like this, right? Imagine that, that um, you... You buy a car, and they said, you know, we figured out that the right uh, way to design cars is that they break 3% of the time because that kind of maximizes our return and our garages get to be full, and if people come to... I mean, are you going to buy that it's okay somehow because it's just business? Well, I think, I think if you train people that just business is a good argument, then they would. You know, and, and we've trained lots of stuff in society, executive compensation, salary dispersity. There's lots of stuff that we can... I think try to override people's initial belief with some kind of more a social norm that tells you that this is okay. You don't feel it's okay, but in fact it's okay. Well, on that hopeful note, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much, Dan Ariely, for Thank taking you. time out. Thank you very much. All right.
blackbird days are getting cold snakes and lizards are sucking up the gold chrome plated plastic they give you in return to teach you a lesson you shouldn't have to learn